Si tienes ciertas afecciones crónicas como enfermedad cardíaca, asma, diabetes y tienes 19 años o más, 52, 36, 42, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20, vacuna conjugada antinomocósica 20 valente, una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar20. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Hey everyone, and welcome to Talk Nerdy. Today is Monday, October 21st, 2019. I'm the host of the show, Cara Santa Maria. And this week we have a great one for you. Before we dive in, I want to thank those of you who have made Talk Nerdy possible. Remember, Talk Nerdyism will always be 100% free to download, and that's because of the support of listeners just like you. So if you want to pledge your support for the show and you want to hear your name read right at the top, all you've got to do is go to patreon.com slash talknerdy. This week, I want to thank who? I want to thank Ulrika Hagman. I want to thank Pedro M. Rosario Barbosa. Dudas Infinitas, Phil T. Bear, The Zombie Drummer, David J. E. Smith, Brian Holden, and Jeffrey Sewell. Thank you all so, so very much. All right. So we're going to be talking about an interesting new technology called mass photometry today. And to do it, I have a great chat with Joanna. I want to make sure I pronounce her name right here. Yes. Dr. Joanna Andretska. Yay! She is the product marketing manager at Refine, which is a company that makes these really, I mean, they develop the technology, but they also make these really great tools in the laboratory to help analyze molecules. Now, she's going to help explain all of that. So without any further ado, here she is, Dr. Joanna Andretska. Well, Joanna, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Cara. Thanks for inviting me. So, you are the product marketing manager at Refine. And Refine is 
an interesting startup. When you go to your website, the very first thing it says, like in you know, large letters across the top, is weighing molecules with light. And of course, this process that you guys use, you call mass photometry. So we've heard of mass spectrometry. Gosh, that's hard to say. Mass spec. And we've heard of um, photo, I'll photo everything. So photo means light and metry means to measure, right? And then I don't know, what does the mass stand for? So you see, this is a little bit uh, confusing, uh, maybe not conventional because this is absolutely new way of um, analyzing uh, molecules, let's say. And uh, it really sounds strange, but it is literally weighing molecules with light. To kind of explain uh, how it works, uh, it's also not that simple, but imagine you have a microscope uh, where you can image molecules. And now every molecule will appear as a small dot. It's kind of difficult to explain it without having my slides and beautiful <laughs> pictures. I know, but, that's uh, one of the things about podcasting that's kind of a bummer. So instead we, yes. have to, we have to imagine in our minds. Exactly. So you have a bunch of dots that are dark and some of them are darker, some of them are lighter. And the signal, the intensity of this dot uh, scales with their mass. So I think there is no other technique that, that could do it. And that's this is what I said. This is a completely new way of analyzing and looking at, at molecules. And this is also a direct way of measuring molecular mass of molecules. Okay, so you've got single individual molecules and the mm -hmm. more massive they are, the, let's say, darker they are. And you're able to actually measure those changes in intensity using light. And that gives you a, a precise measurement of their mass. That's correct. If you know their mass, does that mean then you know what they are? Uh, not exactly. Okay. The problem is reversed. Typically, people know exactly what they have because we know how to produce, let's say, proteins, and we are really good in engineering things. So we typically know what we have, but we often we are not sure if what we have is exactly what we want. Is it maybe smaller, maybe degraded during the process? Uh, often we also ask this question of. Uh, if what we produced interacts with something else. And as you can imagine, all these questions you can answer by weighting molecules because whatever happens with your molecule, it will reflect in a change of its mass. That's why mass measurements are very important. I see. Okay. So this is really um, much more of a useful tool for research purposes um, and maybe even clinical purposes when we're talking about um, like molecules that occur in the body or occur in nature. We're not just talking about producing things in a very controlled situation in a laboratory. Exactly. The, the problem is really multidimensional and knowing the molecular weight of molecules, it's really a fundamental knowledge people People always need it, and there are several techniques that you can use. 
but none of them is that direct. You, none of the uh, techniques allow you to actually see your molecule, a single molecule. It's typically a bulk measurement. You have to uh, put your molecules through a gel or resin, and the behavior can be different because it's not exactly their native environment. Um, so that, that that's the power of mass photometry, that you actually see your molecules and you directly know how big they are, and therefore you can you can say, uh, for example, they interact with each other or they don't interact with each other, or maybe they are not perfectly happy and they fall apart, uh, things like this. So maybe to take a little bit of a step back for people who are kind of struggling right now to remember their basic biology and chemistry classes, when we talk about molecules, what we're really talking about is small kind of conglomerations of individual atoms, right? Yes. So we should maybe be precise and uh, kind of narrow down our discussion and make it clear that when I say molecules, I typically mean maybe proteins and DNA, RNA, lipids. So all these kind of building blocks of uh, a cell. Mm. Carbohydrates? Do you look at those too? In combination, so you can look at glycosylation of proteins. I would not look at single glycosylation. Yeah, this, this would be a little bit too small. So there is a detection limit. Uh, so larger things um, like proteins, yes. Mm -hmm. And proteins, of course, are ubiquitous in um, biological settings, right? The body, whether we're talking about humans, animals, plants, anything, there's so many different proteins and they have so many different functions, um, very important, yeah, functions. Um, so it's super important that scientists be able to get a handle on which proteins exist and what's happening with those proteins. Exactly. And so really, is this... Um, technology, which of course ha is now being translated into, um, I guess we could call it like a tool, like a, a, an instrument for the laboratory. Is this really marketed or targeted towards, you know, bench scientists, laboratory scientists? What kinds of settings do people tend to use this technology in? So uh, just to give you a little bit of background, uh, we intro introduced this instrument or product, if you like, um, six months ago, so in March 2019, and the Biophysical Society meeting, uh, we showed the product. Uh, so it's it's really <laughs> it's very new, and we actually we still learn. And so the so the source of our knowledge is really our our customers. They tell us what they want to do with it, and it's quite surprising what we think we could use it for, and what people want to use it for. So what I would say is the the most obvious uh, use of mass photometry is really quality control of your sample. Okay. Because this is what, what people in biochemistry lab do every day, and they have really many, many tools to do it. But uh, the big advantage of mass photometry is that it's it's very quick and simple way of doing exactly the same thing, but it just takes you, let's be honest, uh, two minutes instead of uh, sometimes we are talking hours so uh, even if you don't really get a new sort of information 
the time you spend on the measurement is dramatically shorter. So I think this is one uh, of the biggest advantages of uh, of this technique. Uh, if I'm a laboratory researcher and I am, you know, I'm a biochemist and I'm working in a lab studying, I don't know, some sort of enzyme, um, interested in the properties of this enzyme. And I, like you said, I periodically need to quality control my sample. I need to test it to make sure that the molecules that I think I'm working with, the enzymes that I think I'm working with are mm -hmm. still what intact they haven't um folded or they exactly. yeah okay and so how would i traditionally conventionally do that before um before you know mass um oh gosh what are we calling it again it's such a new word i've made it's like mass photometry yes I phot know. yeah photometry um so before <laughs> mass photometry how would i have done this kind of quality control so during the process of um, getting your enzyme ready, you will definitely run a few SDS gels where you uh, run your protein through a polyacrylamide gel uh, to make sure that you have your protein. Uh, maybe if you are more interested in a native uh, behavior of your protein, you will uh, run a size exclusion chromatography, which means uh, you run your protein through a column um, to make sure, again, that the size is exactly the same and there are no aggregations or weird things. Yeah, so this is like, these are these kind of lab techniques that have been around for decades where you're taking a sample, you're putting it basically in some sort of substrate that works as a little tiny sieve, and usually you have to run some sort of either chemical or electrical um, exactly. process All through it. Yeah. yeah and it'll it'll basically cause it to separate out and you can see where all the little constituent parts end up and you know that you've got um the right size and shape of everything right that's correct okay so so now to compare this um, i think you have a really good picture of <laughs> what these techniques are what you do uh, with a mass photometer uh, you have a small cover slide where you put a drop of buffer uh, and then you add your sample. You measure this for a minute. And when I say measure, it means you detect proteins that will bind to the glass surface. So each binding event will appear as a, as a dark dot, as I explained before. Oh, okay. So it's actually so, like adhering to the glass. Yes, exactly. Okay. So you, you do it for a minute. Then you spend maybe two minutes analyzing the data, and what you get is a histogram. So um, each molecule is fitted. You get contrast or signal, which corresponds to molecular uh, weight. And you get a very similar outcome to what, uh, for example, SEC will give you. So you, you get a histogram, and uh, you know how your protein is behaved. And if you see uh, one single peak, you know that protein is happy. If you see some additional peaks, then maybe you have a problem of aggregation. Or if you get completely different uh, molecular weight, then maybe your protein was not expressed pro properly. And all this sort of information you can get very quickly. The big advantage of this, it's kind of, uh, I think I should really say it, you, you need very little of your sample. So uh, especially for chromatography, you need significant amount of sample which is at the end while well, you can still collect it 
but you you need as a start you need a lot of material for mass photometry you need very little sample and i had a very good example today uh, someone came to me and and he said this is a sample it's so difficult to uh, to make it i want to characterize it uh, i have uh, 10 microliters of it is it enough and i said i need to dilute it at least 100 times so one microliter will be enough and he was so happy because it means he still has his nine microliters and then if it's all right he can use it for his experiments Okay, so so we're talking like in the type of research where people are synthesizing molecules and they're very hard to synthesize, or in the type of research where they're working with teeny tiny organisms or they're trying to look at samples from teeny tiny areas. Um, I could see this having important kind of biomedical um, use as well. You know, a lot of times it's hard to get a very, very large sample of something. In my mind, I can't help but compare it because I'm trying to think of examples that people who are listening to the show who have never, ever worked in a lab. And so, of course, Mm. I want to connect this to some um, knowledge that might already be in our heads. And I think almost everybody has watched like crime television, like some sort of procedural (laughs) crime drama. And they're used to watching um, analysis in, in like a forensic crime show where they actually use mass spec, where they'll take a sample of something and maybe try and sequence that sample to see what the sample is made out of. So they'll put a little drop and then the machine reads the sample using all sorts of interesting, sophisticated techniques. And then they just get a readout that says, oh, the dye that was used in this, you know, whatever matches the dye that we found on his shoes. Ha ha, crime solved. Um, And in those situations, they need sometimes the capability to read only a tiny amount. I mean, you hear it a lot with like DNA samples, right? We found one hair Mm -hmm. or we found only one, you know, tiny speck of blood and we had to be able to determine where it came from. So this is not the same um, because obviously we're looking at a different, we're looking at the size of like, let's say protein molecules, or like you said, maybe RNA or DNA molecules, but you can make these determinations with one, one millionth of a liter a tiny little drop. Exactly. So you can also imagine um, if you want to test or screen different conditions or different samples, you don't need to produce a lot of material. The same amount of material allows you to screen for different conditions if, if we now go back to biomedical research, right? So it lowers the cost, which I think is also important, right? You're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because of course, it costs money to make a lot of material, especially if it's a really complicated um, kind of recipe if, or a complicated extraction. Exactly. So Refine is the name of the startup company, right? And this group is, um, tell me if I'm wrong, it's out of Oxford? Yes. So this is a spin-off of uh, the group of uh, Professor Philip Kukura. And, and so are are you somebody who has worked previously as a research scientist and now you've kind of switched over into industry? Yes, that's correct. So actually, I, I worked with Philip. Uh, I joined the group in 2012. I don't know if you want to hear my story. It's it's this kind of story where uh, nothing went according to the plan. <laughs> <laughs> I love these kinds of stories. And you know what's funny is I think every time I talk to a successful scientist or a scientist who really loves their job or a scientist who really wants to share, 
um, all of the cool things that have happened, they say the same thing. Like nothing went to plan. I thought I was going to do it this way. And then everything changed. So yes, please, please. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I joined the group and I had this project. Um, it had nothing to do with mass uh, photometry at the time. Uh, it was uh, it was to develop uh, or work with a microscopy technique called um, inter, uh, interference scattering microscopy. And the idea was, uh, now it, it gets a little bit complicated and I don't really want to deviate too much from the main topic, but I was supposed to attach small gold nanoparticle to a protein that walks along actin filaments. It's called myosin-5. and the job of this protein is to kind of transport cargos inside the cell. And when I tell people that proteins walk, uh, they think I'm crazy, but uh, really some proteins can walk. And it's it's incredible fun to study this kind of proteins we call the molecular motors. Oh yeah, I've seen I've seen some like graphic representations of them. They look like little tiny robots and they're like moving down, you know, some sort of... Exactly. So they look like two little legs and they move along a rope. And and this is really what they do. Uh, so my job was to attach a small particle to one of the legs. And then in this microscope, I was supposed to follow it and characterize the movement because there was an open question of how, how these legs actually move. Um, so there was a lot of um, frustration at the beginning because I had to attach these gold nanoparticles to this motor. And for a long time, I could not see anything in this microscope. I could see uh, gold nanoparticles. They, they, give, they give you a lot of signal, but none of these particles would move. So I did it for a few weeks and, and I, was, I was really depressed, like nothing worked. And I started this long hours in the lab and, and nothing worked. And one night, uh, I looked at one of the videos and I could see a very faint signal, like something was moving, but I was not really sure. And I was desperate. So I, I, I told my colleagues, like, hi, look, do you think it's gold? And, and when I said this, we look at each other and we realized that it cannot be gold because, I mean, we know what gold looks like. It's a massive blob. So this very faint signal must be myosin-5, the molecular motor. But if the gold is not attached, how the hell, how is it possible that we that we actually see it? And then Jaime, he, he's, he was a PhD student in Phil's lab and he's absolutely brilliant. He very quickly did some um, image correction and, and like corrected this this movies. And we could very clearly see that this is a very faint signal. And then we could characterize it and find out that it's actually myosin-5 moving. And at the time, um, we knew this could be possible, but we never expected that it would be possible with our um, setup, which we had at the moment. Uh, so I think this is... It wasn't... This it is a, attuned like you weren't actually trying to develop the technology no. that you're working with now no exactly but we realized that it's relative it's not easy so please don't think that it's like super easy <laughs> but it was not as hard as we thought and then 
the following years was just constant improvement and development and like pushing there because myosin 5 is a big protein. So in a way, we were very, very lucky because we looked at big protein that was moving. So it was pure luck that we could detect it. And then very, very hard work came to actually detect proteins that are not moving, that are much smaller. And uh, it was work of many, many people in the group to actually make it possible. So I'm, I've always been curious, kind of when something like this happens, you're working in a lab, you're doing, you know, what we think of as traditional bench work, like wet lab work, um, trying to answer research questions, solve problems, whether this is very basic research or more kind of applied research. Um, you know, we I think most of us listening to the show have a general idea of what it means to some extent to be a lab researcher. But then every so often you hear these really brilliant stories where somebody stumbles upon a new way to do something and they realize, oh my goodness, if more people had access to this method or to this technology, it would really change or streamline the way that everybody in this field does lab work. So when you make the decision to say, let's try and produce this as an actual commercial product. I mean, that's a whole different, you know, skill set that's required. It's a completely different venture then that you are um that you're going out on. How do you how do you really take the time and make the decision to say, okay, this is something we want to do? So you see, I must say I was not the one brave enough to do it, right? So I think it was it was Philip uh Philip Kukura, he was the yeah, the driving force of, of this effort. There was a brilliant student of his lab who actually uh, designed the instrument. He actually gave up his PhD and yeah, sacrificed this a little bit. I still hope he will finish one day, uh, but let's see how it goes. You would think this would be good enough to write a dissertation around. <laughs> 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 I I think so, but he's just so busy. I, I guess it's difficult to find time and, and wrap everything up. So uh, I was actually for a long time still trying to go stay in academia, get my independent position. But I think it was maybe a little bit too early for the technique. I, I, I went through many interviews and I guess people did not really believe it was possible what what I was talking about. Uh, I went shortly, uh, I worked for a different company, so I get a little bit of experience in industry. And I also realized that I have a lot of fun doing this because it exposes you to different problems. You interact with scientists and in a way you have more projects and you do more science than if you focus on one uh, on one project. Uh, if you understand what I mean. Uh, so then when the when the company actually was uh, spun out, uh, I decided to join because as you can see, I, I feel like I have my small contribution and I wanted to be part of it because I believe it it can really change biochemistry. And, and I think it would be great if in a few years in every lab there will be mass photometer and, and it will make people's life easier. It's true that some things change as we get older. 
But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. Oh, how neat. And how neat to be at the very, very ground floor and something like that. So you um, you are a biochemist then. Is that the area of research that um, that you kind of came up through? Yes, exactly. My background is biochemistry. Mm. Did you start with that, like all the way from your, I know that the university system is different um, all over Europe, but, you know, here in the States, we'll do like a bachelor's and then maybe a master's um, and then a PhD if we're going to stay through kind of the traditional academic course. Have you always been studying biochem every step of the way? So it's a little bit more complicated. So I did my uh, master's, if you like, in biochemistry and then my PhD. it was a change because I, and then since then, I always say I'm a biophysicist and and I was always working with um, different single molecule techniques. So uh, my PhD was all about single molecule fluorescence, where we put different fluorescent dyes on the protein and we actually could characterize structures of this, uh, of these complexes. So we had a lot of fun and it was really great. I worked a little bit with optical tweezers. And when I joined Philip, um, I was really attracted by the possibility of using gold and do very fast tracking so you can follow very fast movement. But then it turned out that I'm doing this label-free imaging and but it's still single molecule research, I would say. So uh, since my PhD, I think I'm quite consistent. And yeah, I say I'm a biophysicist. I'm proud of it. <laughs> well, and I love that because it, it it's absolutely true that it's very, very difficult in sort of today's landscape to remain siloed in an individual field. Like even when I was doing my neuroscience research um, at the master's level, I was Basically, I was working in an electrophysiology lab, and my professor, who is a neuroscientist, he really is a neurophysiologist because we were doing multi-electrode 
um, array usage. So we were looking at neuronal networks, right? Brain networks with all these teeny tiny microelectrodes underneath them and, and measuring their activity that way. But you could not work in that lab if you didn't have a very good basic grasp of physics. It was just impossible. It's like anymore, the technology and the, I guess, biology or the wet work or whatever you want to call it, the procedural kind of methodological stuff, it's so intertwined with the technology, isn't it? This is true. It's also sometimes intimidating because, uh, of course, I'm a biochemist and I know a little bit, but I don't know everything. I'm not maybe a great builder, but you know a little bit of everything. And then sometimes you feel like you know nothing. You see what I mean? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I think you have to... uh, Now I see... uh, I think it's a big advantage. And I think... uh, I'm really thankful and I'm happy I worked in this kind of uh, really interdisciplinary teams of biologists, physicists, because I could learn a lot from these people. It doesn't mean that I'm an expert, but... uh, I was exposed to many, many different problems. So it was a great experience. Yeah, and the truth is you don't have to know everything to know enough, right? You have to, A, know who to talk to, who can solve some of those more complicated problems, and B, you you have to be able to do the basic troubleshooting that's required to get the job done. I remember in our old lab, there were so many wires everywhere. I mean, I guess that's a hallmark of an electrophys lab, just so many wires. And the, the joke was always, if something breaks, just follow the spaghetti. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like follow the spaghetti and see what it's it's you know plugged into and maybe you'll figure it out. None of us really knew what we were doing. Um but ultimately you 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 hack your way through and it is really cool to see now when you read papers like in the archive or you know I see that even on on the Refine website, you know, you can download the white paper on the mass photometry um uh technology and the truth of the matter is there's a lot of different kinds of science that had to go in to producing this, right? That's correct, because it's not only the instrument itself, it's the way we handle the sample, the the whole workflow. It it was a collaboration and it was a work of many, many people. And I, I think I feel really privileged because I remember mass photometer being something completely different. Now it's this kind of really nice little shiny box. Uh, We sometimes call it a shoe box. Uh, But it used to be a massive uh, jungle of different optics. And at the same, cables, other boxes, more boxes, uh, complete chaos. And it's incredible how this uh, home-built microscope turned into a product. Yeah, it's really neat when you think about the fact that, you know, things have become very plug-and-play. And I think that there's a new sensibility around technology that, um, you know, we like for things to be very user-friendly, intuitive, um, clean kind of aesthetic. It's sort of the uh, appleization of 
of the world, right? Like um, we think of kind of Apple products as, and they weren't obviously the only or even the earliest version of this, but I think that they've really captured that kind of sensibility um, all the way across the globe. And now it's really cool to see that actual laboratory technology. And I'm looking at a picture of the Refine One, which is the actual product. And you're right. It's like a little shoebox or it almost looks like a tiny projector. I don't know. It's very clean. There's almost no, you know, just stuff hanging out. There's not a million dials on it. Things don't look the way they used to look in the lab. Well, a lot of labs still just have a lot of old equipment in them. But we are moving to to more compact, more portable, more self-contained, you know, push button and get readout. Like these are the, this is the way we want to work now. No, this is true. And it's also because um, many, many labs, they struggle uh, in terms of space. So you, you can't produce a big instrument because there will be always a problem where to put it. So um, it's important that the instrument is is relatively small and compact and easy to use. I wonder how many people listening to the show who aren't like actively sitting in their labs right now, like under a vent hood with their headphones on listening to this, like pipetting. It's funny. I sometimes make a joke that I know that it like 2% of the listenership is pipetting right now and I'll get tweets or Facebook messages like, I was pipetting when you said that. Really? Because yeah. <laughs> um, there is always, I think, a small percentage of the listenership of Talk Nerdy that are lab scientists or graduate students, um, you know, who listen to the show because they love the science. Uh, but probably the vast majority of people listening to the show are like, yeah, science is great. I've never actually been in a science lab. And so I think what, what most people think of what a science lab looks like is what they see on TV, which is ludicrous. Because on TV, everything looks really shiny and new. Everything like on TV, there's like endless budget. Every science lab is super high tech and cutting edge. But the truth is, most science labs are, you know, they're they're messy and they're barely getting by because science is expensive to do. There's always a shortage of funding. Exactly. And so, like you said, they struggle with space. Part of that is because they struggle with money. Like, you know, you might have a tiny little room where you're expected to do really complicated experiments. And so, and bench space, actual space on the countertop is at a premium. That's true. Absolutely. And so how does the the um, Refine One, the actual product itself, work? Does it plug into a computer or is it all self-contained? No, no. So actually it's, so what you just downloaded from our web page is uh, the photometer. There is another box. I have to be honest here. There is an electronics box which is connected, but it doesn't take that much space because typically we put a, a computer screen on top of it. Ah, okay. And it's connected to that. You need a computer. So uh, either normal uh, computer or a laptop, but this would be the, the whole setup. And so this is where you'll get the, the histograms, the little like a bar graph readouts, mm-hmm. but also can you visualize the cells that way too? The cells? I'm sorry, the molecules. Yes. So basically, the, the software, the analyzer software, we call it Discover MP. And um, there is a the main panel is actually your video because uh, I think it's psychological. You want to see your molecules, so you can yeah. scroll through this video and you can look at your particles. 
but in fact the most important information is underneath where you where you see your histogram and the movies can be exported you can look at them if you like all day long and you can export your histograms you can uh, analyze them the way you want so this is sort of the data you get so on on one side you get your movie on the other side you get your histogram and this gives this gives you a full information i guess Wow. So you think about, you know, going from this sort of accidental observation that you guys made in the lab all the way to this sort of like polished shiny box. What we're really talking about is not just hardware. It's a lot of programming. It's a lot of software as well. Oh, thank you for bringing this up. And <laughs> this, is, this is absolutely true because uh, people sometimes forget how much work uh, has to be done and it's actually the main effort and actually right now the 1MP the photometer is more or less a ready so, uh, system of course there will be another generation another generation but at the moment this is what it is but the software can, can be always improved and you can think about all different features uh, but we have really really great team uh, of software engineers and i think they do fantastic job and i've seen different products different instruments and there is always a um, software issue software crashes uh, i don't know it looks ugly um, i think our software is amazing <laughs> And, and 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 it's getting better and better and of course uh, people i mean at, at this stage nothing is perfect and i hope our early customers will give us some slack uh, but we really put a lot of effort to improve we collect as much feedback as we can and we try to implement of course we have to be selective because sometimes people want things of course it would be nice to have it but Maybe we need something more fundamental first, but we have all these requests on the list and hopefully um, we will be able to implement all of this. But software is an important part of, of, of the product, if you think about it. And that's really cool, the kind of like user feedback um side of the conversation, because it's almost like, you know, we talk a lot on the show about citizen science. And of course... Um, yes, they are citizens, but they're also scientists who are giving you this feedback. So it's like a little more than citizen science, but it is really cool um, to think about the fact that your iterations are in some ways customized to the exact needs of the types of people who are going to use this product. Because I can only imagine that when you were first developing it, when you were first trying to optimize it, there were researchers um, who ultimately would be end users who you didn't even imagine applications that you didn't even think of. This is true. So new applications that we, as you said, we did not imagine. But there is another problem. It's it's my personal problem because I have this long history of of uh, IceCAD. I'm just impressed with anything, right? <laughs> because I used to work with with softwares like three different softwares, and then you have to copy this data into it was just yeah it was a mess so for me everything is amazing but i have to keep in mind that um, 
I think about myself as a, a facilitator. I, I kind of try to, because also uh, the software people, they, they are just super smart and for them everything is simple. And, you know, if I tell them, oh, customer asks for this, and it's like, oh, you can just write Python script. It's like, no, our customers cannot do it. We need a <laughs> yeah. feature for this. So it, it sometimes uh, it's my job to convince uh, our software team that certain features are just absolutely necessary. Yeah, like, no, that needs to be a button. <laughs> like, they're exactly. not going to write code. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. It is true that when you are so steeped in your own work, you forget how not intuitive some of the things that you do. And this applies in any field, not just in the sciences, you know, any of us who have a certain level of expertise, um, that's part of what expertise is. It's the automaticity of it. And we forget that it is not um, second nature for other people to do the basic things that we do simply because we do them all the time. Exactly. So it's a really great exercise for me. That's very, very cool. I love this conversation because even though I have to admit for the general talk nerdy listener, it's probably been a little bit more technical than we would usually go, like maybe a little bit more um, uh, specific or, or wonky. But what I like about it is that it's a slice, a microcosm of it's sort of peeling back the curtain on what's happening every day that will eventually downstream become the findings that we read about in science news, right? Like usually we read about, ooh, scientists have, you know, developed this new way to use CRISPR to alter this gene. And, mm -hmm. and now we've got a different kind of tomato or something. Um, <laughs> but we don't often get to take the time to sort of peel back and talk about the building blocks, the foundational things that make all those downstream discovery is possible because the truth is people use so many tools in their work and all of those tools have to work and they have to be reliable um, and they have to produce valid results. And so this is a really cool example of a brand new cutting edge tool that is literally going to make potentially hundreds, maybe thousands, uh, maybe even, you know, tens of thousands of people's lives easier in the lab to help them get you know, to the place where maybe they're going to be able to to give some of these really cool results. This is really nice what you said, because I think we live in a world where we don't have these great discoveries every day. I, I think what science is, is really, it, it's just small improvements. And it's sometimes difficult to see the full picture, right? And, mm -hmm. and the whole story. And, and it, it, it just works completely different than 100 years ago where someone had this brilliant idea and it just worked. Now it's just work of many, many people and, and small steps, and they, they just have to be the right steps at the right time and the right direction. And I think we were really lucky because uh, it, for us, it went very, very fast. I hope we can really change biochemistry for a little while. Oh, I love that. And I feel like that's a really good time to maybe shift gears and move towards the close of the episode. Because when I um, end each episode, I do it by asking my guests 
a couple of kind of big picture questions. You know, on Talk Nerdy, I interview people from, gosh, across the scientific spectrum, and also a lot of journalists and writers who cover science in their in their daily work. And I'm always really interested to see how you know, the work that you're sort of steeped in in the day-to-day actually impacts or reflects your maybe bigger um, views of social issues or of global issues. And so I would love to know from you, um, I want you to think about the future, which I know is probably part of what you have to do every day in the kind of work that you do. Um, In thinking about the future, number one, the first question is, what is the thing that worries you the most, preoccupies you, keeps you up at night. Maybe you're, you know, really kind of cynical or just concerned about. And this could be any context. It could be the future just of your work, the future of, you know, the planet, like you can go big or small. Um, And then on the flip side of that, the second question, you know, just so we end on a positive note, um, when you think about the future, what is the thing that you're most kind of hopeful and excited and and sort of optimistic for so i would i would say i can tell you one thing i really worry about but i don't really want to go into details and i don't want to because i don't think i'm smart enough but i really worry about brexit oh absolutely (laughs) absolutely and this is one of those great examples of the fact i think that um you know we have our expertise in in areas where we dedicate our whole lives, and then we have opinions and ideas about other things, but we can't all be expert about everything. Exactly, and you don't really have influence. But mm. if you if you ask me what I worry about at the moment, I I really worry about it, and I I will leave it like this. Are you? <laughs> I have to ask you actually. So you're you're obviously not obviously, but based on your accent and your name, you're Polish, but you live in the UK. You work in Oxford. Yes. At this company. Are you a UK citizen or are you on like um, a work visa in the UK? I'm a very very new uh, British citizen. Yes. Oh, congratulations! <laughs> Thank you. I received my passport like three weeks ago. Oh gosh! So you weren't even able to vote in the Brexit vote, were you? No, because, well, I think many people did not expect this to happen. Yeah. Things happen. I think that is um, an expected and completely understandable answer to the first part of the question. And in so many ways, parallels, I think, what you will hear from a lot of people here in the States about our own issues. You know, your Brexit is our Donald Trump. And I think that there are a lot of parallels there for sure. I'm sure a lot of people listening completely understand where you're coming from, or if they don't at least agree with you. Um, On the flip side of that, what is, you know, what is something that you are really excited about when it comes to the future, really optimistic about? I'm not a pessimistic person. I'm a realistic person. And it's really hard for me to think about something optimistic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, if, you tell me, if you ask me to name 10 things I worry about, I w- we, we would get there. <laughs> well, maybe maybe instead of thinking like about the whole world and sort of like, you know, the overwhelming enormity of it all, you could think about scientific advancement or achievement or even like, you know, advancements within your fields? Is there anything that, you know, has been giving you a lot of hope lately? 
we live in a very exciting time. Like if you think about creating molecules with light, this is something which a few years ago people would think is impossible. We have a, a number of revolutions in science. We have resolution revolution in in electron microscopy, in fluorescence imaging, and we just see things that were not possible to be observed a few years ago. So I think we do incredible progress in terms of imaging. And I think this will answer a lot of biological questions. The last 10 years, we, we, we really did milestones in terms of uh, resolution and detection limit in terms of imaging. And we can actually see structures of molecules. We can resolve uh, cellular structures. We can now see molecular mass of molecules. And it, it will just allow us to answer many, many biological questions. And I think this is exciting. Absolutely. I think that, like, you know, there are questions in the sciences that we couldn't dream of answering before, because even though we have the theoretical knowledge and the like, it's not like we weren't smart enough. It's not like we didn't know enough background. We just didn't physically have the resolution. Like you said, we didn't physically have the tools to be able to get the data out of the system and be able to manipulate it in such a way that we could glean the, you know, the answers we were looking for. And it seems like all the time new technological advancements are coming to pass that just open up the world to us in ways that we we just couldn't access before. And how cool to see that we're finally living in a time where the technology in many ways sort of is matching pace with the theory and even sometimes outpacing the theory. Well phrased. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and also actually, I think one thing we have to remember too is that the theory and the technology are in some sort of uh, like positive feedback loop. So sometimes there are questions that we didn't even think to answer because we didn't have the appropriate technology. Like the technology itself is begetting more fascinating questions. And so I think, you know, that really brings things full circle to the work that you and your colleagues are doing at Refine. There will probably be a science that is done utilizing your technology, you know, this capability to weigh molecules with light that you couldn't even have anticipated. And that's such a cool thing. So I'm actually surprised because you did not ask me where the name comes from. I didn't. Not the name of the, the technique, but the name of the actual company, Refine. Exactly, Refine. So it, it actually, it comes from uh, Richard Feynman, and he gave this brilliant talk, plenty of room at the bottom. And if you read the transcript, at some point he says uh, that many of the biological questions can be very easily answered, you just look at the thing. But the truth is, if you read it, because he says many, many, many great things there, it's, it, it's really visionary talk. Uh, he basically says uh, that what biologists need are better microscopes. He refers to electron microscopy and he basically, it's a manifest. He appeals to physicists to make these tools for biologists so they can do their discoveries. 
And he also uh, brings many, many questions, and he says these are such important questions. And only recently we start to getting answers, and this is all because we finally have tools. So I think it's a this is what gives us hope. We we now having tools, and we can finally answer all these questions. I love that. There's something very whimsical about it because there's something very whimsical about Richard Feynman, um, but there's also something very <laughs> profound and and beautiful about that. It really does, I think, provide another layer of of sort of philosophical depth to the entire venture. So that what a cool story. Thank you for for sharing that. Even though, of course, I didn't think to ask, Joanna. This has been such a joy. I've learned so very much. But before we go, I have to ask you how you know how does people listening right now, if they're interested in following, um, you know, some of the work that you're doing, if they want to learn more, you know, where where can they go online and what should they do? I think they should go to our webpage, refine.com. Uh, they can find a lot of information on Philip Kukura's uh, webpage. This is where the whole uh, technique uh, started and was developed. So all scientific papers you can find there. Absolutely. And of course, that's R-E-F-E-Y-N dot com. And as you said, for Richard Feynman, which makes perfect sense now. <laughs> I love that. Well, Joanna, thank you so much for joining me. It's been an absolute joy. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for this. Of course. And everybody listening, thank you for coming back week after week. I'm really looking forward to the next time we all get together to talk nerdy. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.